by grace I am redeemed, and by grace I am restored. So much of our song worship so far this morning has been aimed at encouraging our hearts. And is there more, uh, a more encouraging word than those gospel words, by grace I am redeemed, and by grace I am restored? That is good news this morning. Amen. Well, we are continuing our study of the book of Genesis, and that takes us to Genesis 17. So we're going to be this morning, and this is a significant passage and an interesting passage for us to be in. It's significant because it deals with covenants. So anytime we are dealing explicitly with covenants in the Old Testament, that's an important passage. It's a significant passage for us uh, to dive into. It's interesting, though, because this is the third time that we are dealing with this covenant between God and Abraham. We started in 12, then chapter 15, and now chapter 17. And so my mind wonders why deal with the covenant so many times in a relatively short span. And I think it's for the very reason that Walt has been leading us in worship this morning. God seeks to encourage Abraham's heart. He seeks to encourage his people through these words that testify to his faithfulness. And so this morning, my hope and my prayer is that as we consider God's steadfast, loving kindness towards us in Christ, that we too would be encouraged. This morning, we are indeed going to look at God's covenant with Abraham, and we're going to see him revisit this, that he might confirm his covenant, that he might clarify his covenant and even expand his covenant. So as we go to God in his word this morning, we're gonna see three things, three things. First, we're going to see that in the details of the covenant given in Genesis 17, in these details, we are blessed. Things are going to get specific about the nature of God's covenant with Abraham. And these specifics declare loud and clear that the people of God are blessed. Second, God graciously provides a sign of his blessing. He gives us a sign of his blessing, a picture of his blessing, a sign to seal the promises that he makes with Abraham and the descendants of Abraham. So what is this sign? What is the significance of this sign? That's what we want to deal with in this second point. And then finally, we're going to see what we do with these first two points. These first two points deal with with blessing. Uh, There's blessing in the details, and the blessing is confirmed with a sign. So how do we as the people of God respond in faithful obedience. Abraham is going to model that for us and instruct us. So that's where we will be in the word. Now let us pray that the Lord would indeed encourage our hearts as we seek him in the pages of scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you today. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Lord, would you meet us? Pray now that you would bless us and that you would cause us to hope in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So once again, first point that we want to see this morning is that in the details of this covenant uh, explained in Genesis 17, we are blessed. Read with me, verses one through eight. Verses one through eight, chapter 17. When Abram 
was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Amen. So in this section, we see God provide clarity to the nature of the covenant that he has already made with Abraham. In doing this, he graciously guarantees his promise, not only to Abraham, but to Sarah and to Abraham's descendants and therefore even to us. So let's see this in the text. Verse one tells us God appeared. He appeared grace right from the start. Grace, God takes initiative according to his loving kindness. He appears. He didn't have to, but he shows up and he communicates with Abram. He speaks and he reveals, I am God Almighty. Here God tells us his name. And in doing so, he sets us up for everything that is going to flow in chapter 17. The the name God gives is El Shaddai. It's a name that John Calvin, I think, probably rightly translates as God Almighty. This name shows up 31 times in the book of Job. And every time it shows up in the book of Job, it's meant to be an encouragement. I am the mighty God. I'm in control of this situation. Be comforted. Take heart. In Genesis, it always shows up with the promise of posterity or children. It has this, this idea of mountains. When we, when we think of this name, we're to think of mountains and we're to therefore think of power. The idea is that God is powerful to bring about his promises. He is the God who gets things done according to his might. How is God going to act powerfully here in Genesis 17? He, how is he going to encourage Abraham here? He says, I am going to make a covenant with you. And I don't take this to mean that he is creating a new covenant with Abraham. I take this to mean that he is confirming his covenant with Abraham or maybe even renewing his covenant with Abraham, but then he's clarifying and expanding the covenant that he has with Abraham. I wanna focus on that idea of clarifying and expanding. How does God clarify and expand his covenant with Abraham? By giving him a new name. Check out verse five. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. 
Now, I recognize that the significance of this might be lost on some of us, but this is huge. This is huge. Names for us can be mere markers of identity, things that differentiate us from the people on our left and our right. My name is Jackson. I was named after my grandfather, who was named after Stonewall Jackson, the Confederate general. It says nothing about my personality. My dad's name wasn't even Jack. It doesn't say anything about my destiny. I have no plans to become a general in the Confederate army. Our, Our names are names. They're identity markers. That's not the case in the ancient Near East. In these times, names were often bound up with authority, with personality, and with destiny. What does God changing Abraham's name tell us? A lot. On one hand, it tells us that God has authority over Abraham to name him. He is Abraham's Lord, his mighty Lord. But more significantly here, what we see is is that when God renames Abraham, he gives him a new name. He changes his destiny. The name Abraham is a play on words, and it means the father of multitude. This is his new destiny. Verse five, I give you this new name for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse six, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into a nation and kings will come from you. This is all expanding on Genesis 12 and 15. It's clarifying what was actually promised in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. In Genesis 12, God promised that Abraham would be a great blessing that he would be blessed, and in him all the nations would be blessed. Genesis 15 promises in uh, descendants, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore or the, the stars in the sky, and promises land as well. Well, here now in Genesis 17, we see what these promises will look like in actuality, and they're better than we can imagine. Not just descendants, but kings. Not just land, but kingdoms. Not just blessing, but overwhelming blessing. Abraham will be exceedingly fruitful. He will be exceedingly blessed. And this new name is a reminder of this promise. Now every time one of Abraham's servants or his wife or anyone refers to him by his name, Abraham, they will be declaring the promises of God to him. And they will be confirming to him that God is mighty and strong and faithful. That he's a very great father. And because he's a great, very great father, he will make Abraham a very great father of multitudes. We can keep going. In Genesis 17, verses 15 through 21, God continues to expand. He continues to clarify the covenant, and he reiterates the blessing of the covenant now by telling who the covenant will come through, or by whom the covenant will come through, and uh, through whom the covenant will come through. We read these passages oftentimes, and we read them knowing the outcome. So we assume Sarah and Isaac's role in the covenant that God makes with Abraham. But up until this point, how God is going to carry this about, who God is going to carry this about through, those things are ambiguous. We don't know. We don't know. But that changes in verse 15. As for your wife, I'm changing her name too. Her name will now be Sarah. Sarai and Sarah both mean the same thing, princess. 
She will now be the princess through whom I will bring kings. I'm going to give her, not Hagar, I'm going to give your wife, Sarah, a son. From now on, whenever her name is uttered, people will know that she is the blessed one through whom I'm bringing about my promises, even in her old age. She is vital to this process. She is the mother of the faith. She will be the matriarch. As for your son, the promised heir, it won't be Ishmael. I've heard your prayer. I've heard your desire for your son. We see this beautiful prayer and this this beautiful request made on the behalf of Ishmael in Genesis 17. And God says, I hear that and I will honor that. He will be blessed, but he is not the heir. He's not the promised heir. No, no. The promised heir will come from your wife, Sarah. She will bear you a son and his name will be Isaac, which means laughter. So his name will forever be a reminder that God's promises are far too wonderful, far too lavish, and far too great for us to grasp in and of ourselves. The name Isaac will forever remind the world that God alone possesses perfect wisdom. Oh yeah, all this is happening within a year. The idea that comes to mind as I consider these things is the idea of an overzealous dad who goes and he makes promises that are a bit too big for him. You know this idea, right? It's the dad who promises a big trip or a big gift, but then something happens, some sort of circumstances uh, take shape that, that mean that those things can't come to fruition. He has to come back and he has to backtrack. He has to take it back and try to explain why these things aren't actually going to work out. He has to amend the promise that he made. This happens, right? We are human and therefore we err. We let one another down. Well, 31 years of life has trained me to read Genesis 17 and to expect a broken promise. Verse 1 begins by telling us that Abraham is 99 years old. That's not a throwaway detail. He's 99 years old, and that means it's been 13 years since the events of Genesis 16. 13 years since Ishmael was born. 13 plus years since the events of Genesis 15 when the covenant was ratified, where God took on a double curse and swore by himself that he would do these things. 13 plus years, well beyond 13 years, since Genesis 12 when this covenant was initially established. And so, what we see here is at least 13 years has gone by since these things. 13 years of silence from God. And then he shows up. The temptation, I think, here for Abraham and I think for all of us would be to think that God is showing up now to downgrade the promise, to amend the promise. If this stuff hasn't actually taken place yet, if God hasn't shown up and he hasn't clarified, then surely he's coming to say something's changed. Is that what we see here in Genesis 17? No. God Almighty, the God of the mountains, who is mighty to bring about his promise, shows up. He doesn't lessen the promise. He says the promise holds, and it is bigger and greater than you can ever imagine. The idea that we see here is like a father who comes to his children and says, I know that I promised that I would take you to the park but the park that I'm actually taking you to is Disney World. We're going for a week. We have VIP tickets. We're gonna be at the front of the line every time. All the churros you can eat. We're staying in the nicest hotel. We're gonna eat the nicest restaurants. 
Dole Whip for everyone. This morning, you might find yourself tempted to think that God is something other than what he actually is. You might be tempted to doubt his goodness, doubt his grace, doubt his promises to you in Christ, doubt that they hold. If that's you, especially if that's you, but for all of us, I think this passage desires to encourage us. Verse seven, look at how this expanding of the covenant affects us. I will establish my covenant between you, Abraham, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for not a temporary covenant, an everlasting covenant. This covenant of blessing is for Abraham and for his descendants. Who are Abraham's descendants? Who are his offspring? The New Testament clarifies this for us. Galatians 2, or Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This passage implicates you who are in Christ. What does it go on to say? What's the chief blessing of this covenant? Well, the passage tells us that God will give Abraham's offspring land, that there'll be an eternal kingdom. It it anticipates the kingdom of God coming in its fullness that we will experience forever. But chiefly, What's the great benefit, the, the true benefit of the covenant? And I will be their God. That's the blessing of the covenant. God secures it. He will do this. He has sworn upon himself that he will bring it about. This is what God, the almighty God, will do. He says it's an eternal covenant forever. The mighty mountain of God is ours today and forever. Nothing will change that. Take heart today. In these verses, we're seeing what God will do, what God brings to the table. God will make Abraham a father of nations. He will make him a father of kings. He will bless Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he will bless us in Christ. But There are stipulations that God puts on his covenant that he makes with Abraham. What are those stipulations? In other words, what does covenant faithfulness look like for us today? Second thing we want to see in the word is that God graciously provides a sign of his blessing. God graciously provides a sign of his blessing. Genesis 17, 9 through 24, or 9 through 14. Follow along with me. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant 
any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right, so you need to buckle up because you're about to hear the word circumcision so many more times than you were expecting (laughs) to this morning. So in these verses, we see the primary covenant stipulation of chapter 17. As for you, Abraham, we've already seen as for God. What does God do? He brings all these things to the table. He will make Abraham a very great blessing. Descendants will flow, numerous kings. But now as for you, what about you, Abraham? What does it look like for Abraham to keep the covenant? Verse 10, every male among you shall be circumcised. Circumcision. This passage tells us that as a response to God's love and his blessing, the men of the people of God are to be circumcised starting on the eighth day. This is how they would keep covenant. Now, what's the significance of circumcision? This is something that is far beyond what we are often prone to thinking about and and the idea that this would be a a symbol a ritual that confirms the covenant that that that's odd to us so what's the significance what's going on here well Romans 4 provides some great light to help us to understand what circumcision is and what it isn't so Romans 4 if you would turn there real quickly Romans 4 verses 9 through 12 Romans 4, verses 9 through 12. If this blessing then, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So what is circumcision not according to these verses? It's not something that saves. It's not something that saves. No, faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness before circumcision. You remember this happened Back in Genesis 15, God made these grand promises and Abram looked up into the stars in the sky and he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So this is at least 13 years before, well beyond that more than likely, Abraham was counted, faith was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, circumcision isn't a work that saved Abraham. It wasn't like God brought some ingredients of salvation and put them in the soup and Abraham brought the ingredient of circumcision and they mixed them together to make a salvation soup. No, this isn't a cooperation thing. 
No, it's a sign. It's a sign of God's saving grace. Circumcision here functions as a sign and a seal. That's what we see in verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So once again, it's a sign of God's saving grace. It's a sign of Abraham's justification of his being right with God. Genesis 17 and Romans 4 essentially tell us the same thing. God entered into a personal and a covenant relationship with his people. And this relationship, and all that's wrapped up in it, so all of the blessing of the relationship, the things that we just mentioned in our previous point, the things talked about in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, all of the blessing of the covenant was to be physically marked by something. Circumcision. So from this point on, the physical sign or the brand or the emblem of circumcision would mark the people of God. It would declare who they are. They would wear this on their body and it would say, we belong to God. And it would be a sign of the very great blessing that is theirs due to God's gracious activity towards them. Think with me for a second about the idea of a wedding ring. A wedding ring. Wedding rings, I believe, are similar to the idea of circumcision. How so? What does a wedding ring do? How does it function? I think it does at least two things. Okay, so first, a wedding ring reminds its wearer of the fact that they covenanted themselves to another. So when I look at my wedding ring, I'm reminded of the vows that I made to my wife. I'm reminded to keep those, and I'm encouraged to keep those vows. But it also is a declaration to the world at large that I am, that I belong to another that I am yoked to another, that I'm off the market. A wedding ring says you are spoken for. You're claimed. You belong to your beloved and your beloved belongs to you. Now imagine for a second that I never wore my wedding ring. If I just said, it's not important for me to wear my wedding ring. Just just an empty sign. Would that strike you as odd? I think it should. I think it should. It may be a sign, it may be a declaration to myself and to others, but it's an important sign, right? It has a functional functional role to play. It's important. But on the other hand, is the wedding ring the point of marriage? Do we get married so that we can wear wedding rings? Is this an end in and of itself? No. So now imagine... Uh, Kenny Clark, one of my good friends, Kenny and I go out to lunch, and he is a good friend, so he asked me how my marriage is going. What if I responded to him and said, it's going really well. Thank you for asking. I wear my wedding ring every day. How would Kenny respond if that is what I based how well my marriage was going? How would my wife feel if I concluded that our marriage was going well because I wore my wedding ring every day. You see, there's something off here. She'd have cause for concern, right? Why? Because a wedding ring is a sign of something that is true inwardly. 
It declares outwardly that I love my wife and I'm committed to her. And that is to correspond with, a co- that is to correspond with an inward heart reality. The same thing is true with circumcision. The pa- this passage teaches us that Abraham was to keep covenant through circumcision. It's important. This is a commandment given from God. But circumcision was an outward sign that was supposed to point to an inward reality. Why is this so important? Should we be circumcised today? Should we be circumcised today? Yes. Every one of us. Not like in the Old Testament. No. But as children of Abraham, in Christ, every one of us should be circumcised inwardly. The Bible calls this circumcision of the heart. And it says it's for every one of us. As important as outward circumcision was in the Old Testament as a sign and a seal of the covenant, God in his word tells us that this inward circumcision of the heart is what he's primarily concerned with. Romans 2, 25 through 29 puts it this way. For circumcision is indeed of some value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but breaks the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praises is not from man, but from God. What does this passage teach us? It teaches us that religious activities can't make us righteous. Reading your Bibles, showing up to church, being baptized, taking communion, being circumcised, these things can't make us righteous and they cannot make us right with God in and of themselves. No, these things are to flow from a circumcised heart, a transformed heart. They are to correspond with an inward heart reality. They are to be done in faith, not as a means to being justified, lest we should boast. So, if we're to have circumcised hearts, how do we go about doing this? How do we attain a circumcised heart? Please hear me on this. A circumcised heart is only possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A question we haven't dealt with this morning is why circumcision? Why would God use this particular ritual as the sign of his covenant? Why couldn't he use pierced ears or a tattoo or anything else? Why circumcision? There's, there's a lot of really interesting and good answers to this. I wish we had time to cover all of them, but I want to give you one reason why I think this particular sign was employed. Circumcision is a way of communicating the consequences of breaking covenant. What happens if this covenant stipulation isn't obeyed? Genesis 17, 14 tells us. The people will be cut off. This is an explicit image. It's meant to be violent in our minds. In the ancient Near East, covenants were often ratified by the consequences of unfaithfulness to the covenant. 
If I break this covenant, may I be as these animals that have been torn apart. That's what we actually see in Genesis 15 when the animals were separated and God himself walked through the flaming, with the flaming fire. May it be, if I break this covenant, may I be as this dust that I'm sprinkling on my head. In a similar way, if I break this covenant, may I be cut off or may we be cut off like in circumcision. May I be separated from the covenant community. May I be separated from the source of life and the source of covenant blessing, God himself. This, my friends, is bad news. It's bad news because we could never keep covenant. The people of God in the Old Testament proved this. They couldn't even faithfully and continually live before the face of God and be circumcised. And we see the the consequences of this. The people of God in the Old Testament didn't keep covenant, so they were cut off and they were sent into exile, right? And this would be our lot as well because we are not righteous, no, not one. Our hearts are stone. And so we too, like Israel, should be cut off, but... The sign of circumcision anticipates Christ. The Bible testifies to the fact that Christ was cut off so that we would never be cut off. Think of Jesus' words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the cross, in Jesus' death, and his resurrection, he was crushed in our place. He was pierced for our transgressions. On the cross, the Father turns his face away. Why? So that we might have circumcised hearts. So now Colossians 2, 11 can be true for us. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, not a physical circumcision, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In Christ, we have our circumcision of the heart. In Christ, we have transformed hearts. In Christ, we have hearts that are made new, real life hearts that beat for God. God, by his spirit, now indwells us and we live for him. And now the spirit that dwells in us testifies to the fact that God's covenant blessings are for us today and forever. And so once again, We can be encouraged this morning for we are in Christ and therefore God is for us and his blessings are ours. So today, take heart. Take heart. To close our time in the word, we want to consider what it looks like to practically have a circumcised heart. Abraham models this for us. And so what does it actually look like to live this out? It's gonna be our final point. A circumcised heart entails faithful obedience. A circumcised heart entails faithful obedience. Genesis 17, 22-27. Read along with me. When he had finished talking with them, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money. Every male among the men of Abraham's house And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. 
And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. What does it mean to have a circumcised heart? It means that we live by faith. It means that we submit to God's heart surgery on us in Christ and we live believing in the promises of God revealed in his word. That's what we see from Abraham in these verses. God called him to covenant faithfulness by taking on the sign of circumcision. So what did he do? Did he tarry? Did he delay? Did he ask questions? Did he try to get clarification because this is weird? No, he obeyed. His faith worked itself out in loving and faithful obedience. And this is what we're called to as well. We are called to not be a Christian uh, merely outwardly. We're not to wear the wedding band of good works and religious activity only. We're not to be Christians only in what we, when we show up to church, when we read our Bibles. No, we're to be Christians inwardly. Our hearts are to be circumcised. We're to have transformed hearts but it's not to stop here. This is now to be worked out in faithful action. Faithful action. So what does this look like for us? Two things. There's so many things that we can point out here, but I want to point out two things. What does it mean for us to have a circumcised heart today? What does it mean to, have, uh, to work this out in faithful obedience? Two things. Be baptized and take communion. Be baptized and participate in the Lord's Supper. We read the first part of this passage earlier, Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, but by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. There's so much we could say here, but the New Testament clarifies for us that physical circumcision now gives way to the new outward signs that testify to inward realities. Two primary outward signs that the New Testament gives us, baptism and communion. Baptism and communion are God's ordinances for his church. They're commanded of us. They're not optional. They are commanded by Christ Jesus and they identify us with the people of God. They cause us to remember God's faithfulness and they cause us to proclaim God's goodness and grace. And so as we participate in these things, we obey God and therefore we worship God. We are blessed. We are spiritually fed. We are nourished and we spiritually feed and nourish others. And in all of this, Christ is held up as the one who is worthy of all glory, honor, and worship. And so today, are you in Christ? If so, have you been baptized? Have you identified yourself with the people of God? Have you claimed that I am in Christ and therefore I've been buried with him in baptism and I have been raised to life to walk in newness in life? If not, we would love to see you be baptized. We do a, an occasional class here at Grace and we would love for you to participate in that so that we can all benefit, so that we can all be nourished as you come and as you identify yourself with the people of God. Tonight, we'll be meeting at 6 p.m. As we do the first Sunday of every month 
And we're going to be gathering, and one of the huge things that we're going to be doing, the centerpiece of our time of worship tonight is going to be approaching the Lord's table, taking of the cup and of the bread, remembering Christ's death and proclaiming his death until he returns. This spiritual meal is, I, I don't um, say this lightly, it is the highlight of my month every month. I want to invite you to come. This is a commandment of the Lord. This is a way that we uh, act faithfully and we live out having a circumcised heart. That happens at 6 p.m. We'd love for you to join us. We'd love for you to stand upon the promises of God in this way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you and to consider your covenant and your covenant blessings secured for us in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your divine self-disclosure and how you reveal yourself and your goodness and your grace to people like Abraham and how that flowed throughout the generations and how now, even today, we can look upon your glory in the face of Christ. Help us to behold him well. Help us to be encouraged in him. May we now go trusting in the finished work of Christ, knowing that we have transformed hearts because of Christ himself. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.